The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. In this episode, Claire talks to Salman Rushdie about Quixote, his Booker long-listed novel inspired by a literary classic that was arguably the first road trip novel, Cervantes' Don Quixote. And we'll look at other recent examples of the genre, if indeed it is a genre, Claire. Well, I was thinking about this, and um, I was wondering whether actually Chaucer's Canterbury Tales could possibly qualify for that honour. But um, it's poems, isn't it? it? Well, it's a series of fables, but it is on the road. It's not really about the road. So if you define road fiction as works in which a journey as a life-changing experience is a central part of the action, then I definitely think Cervantes nails it. In the 20th century, it became a particularly useful way to deal with the geographical and cultural behemoth of America. Rushdie's Quixote is actually as much a love child of mid-20th century American road movies as of the early 17th century novel, as you discovered, Claire, when he came to the studio. So, Salman, um, this is your 14th novel, and um, you have decided to go back to Don Quixote, or Don Quixote, who you do not style as Quixote, you style as Quixote. Tell us about that, and why do you call him Quixote? Well, it's the normal French spelling, that's one reason. There's an opera called Don Quixote by Massenet, who the character in the book, he likes the opera, so he names himself after the French version. But actually that CH, the SH pronunciation, is very general. In French, he's called Quixote. In in Germany, it's pronounced Quixote. In Italian, it's pronounced Quixote. And even in Spanish, in the Spanish of the time of Cervantes, the X would have been pronounced as a SH not as a her. You know, so Cervantes himself would probably have said Quixote. So anyway, that's a long explanation for something which I just decided because I liked it. You've updated it. It's an American road novel is one way of describing it. You could describe it in all sorts of different ways, but let's start with an American road novel. Mm-hmm. Well, it's about, a. I mean, I've got my own version of an old fool and his younger sidekick. And he's a traveling salesman of pharmaceuticals. Uh, in the middle of nowhere in middle America and has formed an impossible attachment to a television talk show host who he obviously has never met and doesn't know uh, but decides that she's the love of his life. And I mean, and he is kind of an old duffer, so it's extremely improbable that she would be the love of his life. He sets out on this quest across America in a battered old Chevy Cruze to prove himself worthy of her hand. And that's the shortest way I could put the story, I think. But it's a story within a story within a story. So so you have you, the novelist, inventing a novelist who invents Quixote, who then invents this imaginary son who becomes his, his Sancho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what can I tell you? So, I mean, that's a very complicated construction. Not really. You know, I mean, the first level of construction is normal. I mean, there's always a writer inventing the characters, you know, so that's nothing new. But yes, it's a writer inventing a writer inventing the characters. And actually, I've never really before ever wanted to do that self-conscious thing of writing about writing, you know, writing a book about somebody writing a book. And then I found myself doing it. And for a long time, I wasn't sure if it was a good idea or not. You know. And uh, as I was working on the book, I, I kind of reserved the right with myself to take it out. You know, if if I decided it was just embarrassing or wrong or whatever, so so I, for a while I worked on it in in a very kind of provisional way, not not fully knowing if both storylines would be 
would be would remain in the book. And then the storylines just started growing into each other. You know, they started merging. They started putting out tentacles, you know, into each other. And, and then it became interesting to me the way in which they echoed each other and mirrored each other and, and, and revealed things about each other. And so in the end, it, it stayed in. But it was still scary because I knew that for the book to completely work, the storylines had to gradually come closer and closer together until eventually it became clear to the reader that it was the same story. You know, um, I didn't know how to do it. Uh, I, I, I worried a lot about it. I thought, I don't know how to do this. And it's sometimes you feel with a novel that, you, that you've got this large amorphous shape that you're trying to wrestle to the ground, and it wrestles back. <laughs> and and uh, you're not at all convinced that you're going to manage to pin it down. You know? and, and I felt that with this. And then quite suddenly, out of nowhere, as it were, I, I thought of how to do it. And, and that was a moment of relaxation. I thought, okay, now it works. Well, should we introduce listeners to these characters? Yes. Well, he's, as I say, he's an old man who's watched too much television. <laughs> so that's probably the first way to think about him. Um, this is Quichotte, who's this is the Quichotte. character that the novelist has imagined. This is Quichotte, who is our, our Picaro embarking on his picaresque quest. Chapter one, Quichotte, an old man, falls in love, embarks on a quest and becomes a father. They all have these long, you have these long chapter headings. It has these long Dickensian chapter headings. What can I do? Um, that's how they came out. There once lived at a series of temporary addresses across the United States of America, a traveling man of Indian origin, advancing years and retreating mental powers, who on account of his love for mindless television had spent far too much of his life in the yellow light of tawdry motel rooms, watching an excess of it and had suffered a peculiar form of brain damage as a result. He devoured morning shows, daytime shows, late-night talk shows, soaps, situation comedies, lifetime movies, hospital dramas, police series, vampire and zombie serials, the dramas of housewives from Atlanta, New Jersey, Beverly Hills, and New York, the romances and quarrels of hotel fortune princesses and self-styled shahs, the cavortings of individuals made famous by happy nudities, the 15 minutes of fame according, accorded to young persons with large social media followings on account of their plastic surgery acquisition of a third breast, or their post-rib removal figures that mimicked the impossible shape of the Mattel company's Barbie doll or even, more simply, their ability to catch giant carp in picturesque settings while wearing only the tiniest of string bikinis, as well as singing competitions, cooking competitions, competitions for business propositions, competitions for business apprenticeships, competitions between remote-controlled monster vehicles, fashion competitions, competitions for the affections of both bachelors and bachelorettes, baseball games, basketball games, football games, wrestling bouts, kickboxing bouts, extreme sports programming, and, of course, beauty contests. He did not watch hockey. For people of his ethnic persuasion and tropical youth, hockey, which in the USA was renamed field hockey, was a game played on grass. To play field hockey on ice was, in his opinion, the absurd equivalent of ice skating on a lawn. So there we go. We have uh, we have Kishat who who um, it's very exuberant. He's 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 sort of exuberantly involved in rubbish culture, isn't he? Yeah, and I think one of his big differences from his archetype is that he's much more cheerful. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean Don Don Quixote is is described as the knight of the dolorous countenance. 
you know, and and he's a he's a sad faced, sad sack. You know, he's melancholy. And Don Quixote was in was um, had been enraptured by romances. And, yes, but the, but our Quixote is enraptured by junk television. Yeah. Uh, that that's quite an interesting distinction. Well, I just thought that back then in 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 the day, he he Cervantes was trying to say that these awful chivalric novels rot the brain <laughs> and and um and literally have rotted the brain of of his character um so i thought well if i was to find a target now what would it be you know and and that's that's how it happened um but yeah he's more cheerful you know he's he has a nice smile he's and he's he's absurdly optimistic in a way that don quixote is not you know? um but he I would put it like this, that he conceives of this love for this very, very, very famous woman on television, who is probably the most famous woman on television after Oprah Winfrey, um, and never gives up the idea that he can win her hand, in spite of all the evidence. Um, and um, I like that. I like that he was sweet and smiling and hopeful, you know, in in... And to launch a figure like that into a world which is not particularly sweet and not particularly helpful, I thought was 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 a good thing. I thought that worked. There are some uh, several um, um, areas in which this is new for you. One of which is that you're doing uh, it, it's a journey across America, whereas usually you tend to focus on individual cities. Mm. Um, another is that you're you re- you're dealing with the diaspora. Um, with immigration and with really awful racism. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I finished the novel before, The Golden House, I, I, I was very aware of the fact that almost the entire novel takes place on Manhattan Island. You know, and, and, uh, and I remember saying to myself, time to leave town. You know, and, and for whatever, I'd, I had no idea what the next book would be at that point, but that whatever it was, it should get out of Dodge, as they say. Um, and um, and you know, over the course of twenty years that I've lived in in the United States, I've actually I actually have been around quite a lot, you know, to a lot of places, and so so I felt that I was able to leave town, you know, and and convincingly create uh, Middle America, you know, the the thing which the place which the inhabitants of the great cities on the coasts call the flyover states because you fly over them. <laughs> the red states, which the, is, of course, the opposite to, to yes, the be, political Yes, it's very difficult picture, coming yeah. from England. You have to learn that the political colours are the other way round, that you know, red is conservative and blue is liberal. Um, Did you but, make this road trip yourself? I was going to. I mean, I thought about it. Uh, I thought maybe I should just first map it out and then do it. Rent, you know, fly out to the middle of nowhere and rent a Chevy Cruze and, and do it. And I actually asked my younger son, Milan, who is now 22, he was 20 then, I said, would he do it with me? And and he um, he was up for it, except that, I mean, in, a, in, a, in a, li- a conversation that I actually gave to the characters in the book, he said, are you going to drive? And I said, well, yeah, I'm going to drive. He said, no, I don't think you can. Then <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, what, you can drive? And he said, oh, can I drive? I said, yeah. He said, okay, then I'm in. So, um, and I gave a version of that conversation to, to top characters in the book, but... In the end, I didn't do it because I just thought, A, I have actually been around quite a lot and I probably know enough. 
and b i want to be able to make it up i don't i don't want to be tied down to a a, a literal you know kind of road journey which of which there are some very good pieces in america you know there's william least heat moons lost highways you know obviously kerouac there's the central section of of lolita in which humbert and lolita take off through motel land you know there's easy rider there's i mean there's any number of things one of the books that actually really helped me think about it surprisingly was robert persig's zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance you know, which had some sort of anniversary a couple of years ago and so i found myself looking at it which i hadn't done since it came out long well, 30 years ago or something and i thought okay never mind zen and never mind motorcycle maintenance but what i really was struck by was the portrait of the father and son relationship the father and son on a motorbike going across america to try and get to know each other and 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 deepen their relationship and i thought well that's helpful because i wanted to to write about uh, kishot and his the son he makes up for himself who comes to life like pinocchio like Pinocchio, and then we ha- we even have a talking cricket in it. Why would you not? You know, why would you? <laughs> why would you not? If you could have a talking cricket who, who talks speaks, in Italian, who speaks Italian, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's of course because the original Pinocchio, not the Disney movie, but Carlo Collodi's novel Pinocchio, has a talking cricket, and it's an Italian novel, so the cricket speaks Italian. The cricket is called Grillo Parlante, the talking cricket. So um, you so you have a you you have a, a lot of fun, and part of the fun is playing with different literary traditions. And at one point, you have your novelist character, who who is a writer of bad spy thrillers, saying there are novels that are about a dinner party, isn't it? You've got Mrs. Dalloway, you've got Ulysses, but this is not a time for for dinner parties. For dinner parties, this is yeah. a time for he says this is a time for mysteries. This is a time of blood. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a bit of me that always wanted to be a second-rate spy novelist. And I think I've finally made it. <laughs> <laughs> so you think of this partly as a spy novel, do you? Well, there's a bit of it that is, because he, because he has been writing spy novels. And he, you know, one of the subplots is he, he begins to fear that he's kind of become the object of attention for people in the intelligence world that he's been writing about. So this is in The Outer Carapace, which is the novelist who imagines Quichotte, who has his own life, and he has a son as well, who, who is a terrorist, who's gone, d- disappeared into a, a cell, well, or a, an intelli- like, a counter-terrorist. He's a he, kind of he? anonymous figure, you know, like mm. a sort of cyber terrorist who gets turned, begins to work for, depends what you call the good guys, really. I mean, which, which side are the good guys? It's difficult to, to be sure about that. But yeah, I mean, so you've got this story about this spy novelist trying to write a very different kind of book and through this different kind of book to face up to the issues of his own life, like his strained relationship with his son, like his his broken relationship with his sister, and to write imaginatively versions of those stories, working out, if you like, the problems of his own life through his fiction. And so that's how it is that the two stories mirror each other that yes there are the, the and i think those family relationships are really the heart of the book you know because i wanted to write about different kinds of love you know that's to say romantic love in the novel is represented by kishat's absurd infatuation obsession with miss salma r a person whose name differs from mine by one letter <laughs> and, uh, but these other loves you know the loves inside families fathers and sons, brothers and sisters, you know, sometimes strained by distance because of the, as you mentioned, the diaspora, because of the way in which families can be spread across the world and and grow away from each other, you know, and sometimes strained by actual real or imagined wrongs done one to the other, and how how those issues can be resolved. So you have... 
this is one of the ways in which the two storylines come together. So there is a point at which he realises that he has invented a scenario for Quichotte, which actually existed in his own life. Yes. But he didn't know it existed. Yes, but he, he did sort of know, or it was somehow it was part of his family intelligence and the breakdown of that family. I think, you know, it's one of the things that happens to writers, that you sometimes invent things before they happen. You know, and then they happen. And I don't know how that happens, but it does happen. So I wanted that to happen to him, that he, he invents a moment which he then realises is the truth of his own life except he didn't know. That ties in the idea of the public mythologization of all these, you know, the masses of popular culture in this book. Mm. But it's also about the mythologization that happens within individual families. So it's an emotional thing and an entertainment yeah. thing and a, a distraction, but it's also an expression of injury. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of the book which deals with injuries that people do to each other and whether those things are forgivable or not. The question of forgiveness, I think, is quite at the heart of the book. And I, I remember that actually in the Satanic Verses, there's one page in which one of the characters tells another character a story. This man and this woman who are very close friends, they've never had a romantic relationship, but they're close friends. And the man gives the woman, as a token of their friendship, a really hideous, cheap glass vase, right, which has no value of its own at all, but it represents their closeness. And then at a later point, they quarrel. And she picks up the glass vase and smashes it. And they never talk again. And then at a later point, she's on her deathbed. And she sends a messenger to see him and, and, and who says that the only person in the world she wants to see is him. And he says she should have thought about that before she smashed the vase. And the question is, which side of that story are you on? I mean, many people would say that he's unreasonable and forgiveness is so important at such a moment. And some people would say, yeah, but there are things you can't forgive. So in this novel, most people are forgivable, but there is one person who isn't, and that is the benefactor and cousin of Quichotte, who is a, a corrupt doctor, basically, mm, mm. who's peddling drugs. Dr. Smile. Dr. Smile. That is touching on the whole problem of addiction. And we did a session at, in Oxford the other night on the day that the Johnson & Johnson story broke. Mm -hmm. Again, it's another sort of weird thing of fiction presaging. Yeah, I mean, reality. I've been following this whole opioid thing for some years, really. And, and yes, it's all suddenly boiling up with the, with the Johnson & Johnson um, case and with the OxyContin proposal to settle their cases against them for multiple billions of dollars. Actually, interestingly, if you leave the big cities in America, if you go out into this kind of nowhere land, you know, the, the red states, the problem's much worse there. It's much worse. There are whole communities in which opioid addiction is, is rife. So given that the novel journeys through those communities, you know, I had to take this on. And then there are some true stories from, from which it emerges. I mean, there's one particular case of, as it happens, an Indian pharmaceutical entrepreneur who's I mean he's in jail now so we can call him a crook <laughs> um, whose company developed a very powerful opioid spray which was a, an under the tongue spray of the most powerful of the opioids which is fentanyl I mean fentanyl is the opioid that killed Prince and of course under the tongue it's even more powerful as it gets into your system faster and this was made specifically for the use of terminal cancer patients you know who are suffering from what the medical community calls breakthrough pain, which means unbearable pain. And it's very, very useful for that. It, it works very well and has a real value. But unfortunately, he's a crook, Dr. Smile. 
and he decides he needs more money than that. So he starts bribing doctors to prescribe his product, what's called off-label, which means for things that it's not, the label doesn't say it's, it's for. And researching it, the thing that struck me was not that there are crooked entrepreneurs, you know, I mean, that's like saying the sun rises in the morning, you know, but, but how easy it was for people like Dr. Smile to corrupt the medical profession for sums of money which are not life-changing. Doctors all over the country have and continue to collaborate in this business of prescribing opioid medications to people who don't need them and creating this crisis. So I wanted to get into that. As well as this, as Big Pharma, you, I mentioned earlier on the, this thing of racism, which culminates in half the, the races turning into mastodons. How bad is America? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, turning, you're turning ordinary people into dinosaurs. You're no, going, no, 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 mastodons. Mastodons. No, no, be fair. They're not dinosaurs, are they? What no. are they? They're sort of elephants, are they? They're big, yeah, they've got elephants. big tusks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a fairly obvious reference to the great absurdist play Rhinoceros by Eugene Ionesco in which people turn into rhinoceroses. And I remember when I was a student at Cambridge, I acted in rhinoceros, and I was one of the people who turned into rhinoceroses. At 19, you know, I didn't understand the play. And I had to say to the, the director, I said, you know, what's this about? <laughs> and he rather patiently explained to me that, you know, it's a metaphor, Salman. <laughs> and, and that it has to do with fascism. It has to do with Nazism uh, when UNESCO was writing, you know, and, and it has to do with the, with the terrifying realization that sometimes happens that your, your neighbors, that people you know, are suddenly turning into something that you don't know and that you don't understand and that is even frightening to you. And I feel that we're in that moment. You know, we're in that moment where this very divided society where people that you've lived alongside, you know, your children have played together, and suddenly, because of the divisions that arise, you can't speak to each other anymore. It's as if you're a different species. And so I thought that UNESCO might need a rewrite. And I didn't want to use rhinoceroses because he used them already. So I thought mastodons. You've come to the UK. You've lived in the US now for 20 years. You've arrived in the middle of a constitutional crisis. Mm. How, what is the difference between the two places? Well, I don't know, not, not to wish to offend anybody, but this is a much smaller country. And these are the problems of a small country trying to pretend it's still a big one. You know, a country that hasn't ever got used to the fact that it's no longer a great imperial power, but just a little offshore island. It feels like a little offshore island trying to be king. And you know? um, it just ain't. <laughs> you know, at, le at least in America, it is a huge and powerful country, and therefore what happens there is, is more frightening you know, because it affects the whole world immediately. On the other hand, it's kind of a nice change to get away from Trump for a week and to have a different lot of problems to think about. <laughs> Sorry about that. And going back now from the public to mm. the personal, it's a, a story sort of at its heart about a man and his son and mm -hmm. their various different interests. You're a, a father with sons. How personal is this? And you play all those games, like, as you said, Salma is Salmon without an end. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of fun and games in the book, you know. But also, I think, yeah, I mean, I've been, a, I've been the parent of male children for 40 years now, so I have some knowledge of the breed. <laughs> and, um, and I also was an only son in a family. I mean, I had three sisters, but I was, I was the only male child. And I was the eldest, so, you know, in India, of course, that gives you a particular relationship with your father if you're the eldest and only male child. 
And my relationship with my father was not at all good. Right? It was very strained. As a result, when I had children, I thought it became very important for me not to make his mistakes, if you like. I remember saying to myself, if you're going to make mistakes, make different mistakes. You know, don't make those ones. So, I mean, I have this, this double memory out of which the portraits in the book come of one quite bad father-son relationship you know, and a couple of better ones. You know, and, and I tried to sort of use the knowledge of both. And yeah, there are two father-son relationships, one in each of the two storylines. And they don't go the same way. I mean, that's one of the things I thought, if they both ended up exactly the same way, it would, it would feel too didactic. You know, you want them to have their own individual human life. And so they, they mirror each other, they echo each other, but they, they are different stories. The thing about Quichotte and, and Sancho is that Quichotte has imagined Sancho into being, which in a way we do all sort of imagine, we think we imagine our children into mm. being. But then Sancho becomes real. And you describe this in, at various points about him going from black and white into colour. Yeah. And then at, at a key moment, he pixelates. But by that stage, you're so invested in the colour of him that it's it's sort of like a little tragedy, although you know that this is a, it's like a hologram, pi- pixelating, and well, yet you, he's real. Well, you have to care about him. I mean, you, I, mean I think that's the magic of fiction, isn't it? That you can make people care about people who are absurd surrealist inventions. And I thought, if there's no emotional affect, you know, the story doesn't work. You don't care. You know, you've got to care. Otherwise, as it were, who cares? You know. So is the centre, the emotional centre, Quixote, or is it Sancho? You know, it's so interesting you-, you say that. A lot of the book's early readers... Uh, friends of mine and so on who've read it have have related very strongly to the Sancho character and have said how much they're drawn towards him. So I don't know. I mean, you tell me. Because one is a, the book of a parent and the other is the book of a, of a young person. Yeah, and I, that's, you know, very difficult to try and write from both perspectives. You know, I mean, I, I remember that, like, for example, when I wrote Midnight's Children, which also has a kind of family at its heart, the book is written very much from the child's perspective looking up at the adult world. Then later on, after I'd had my first son, when I wrote Haroon and the Sea of Stories, I suddenly realized as I was writing it that, oh, my point of view is reversed. You know, I'm now writing from the adult perspective about the child. You know, and it, it took me by surprise, I did that, uh, but I was very conscious of the fact that that had happened. And in this book, I thought, I have to somehow do both. I have to somehow both be the father looking at the son and the son looking at the father. Mm. I'm going to ask you one last question, and this is a question that came from the audience in Oxford. It's the question that everybody wants to know, mm. which is you had a terrible experience, obviously, with the factoid, which is 30 years ago. You had to be in solitary confinement, more or less, for a very long time. How has that developed you and shaped you as a writer? Would you be a different writer without that? I don't know, really. I mean... To some degree, because, you know, you have an intense experience of that kind and it goes on for a decade, it's going to leave a mark. You know, it also it gave me a lot of information, which most writers don't have. You know, I mean, I've been in that James Bond building on the Thames a number of times, so I can tell you what it looks like from the inside. And I've met a lot of spies. I mean, that's, why, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a second-rate spy novelist, <laughs> because I actually have in my life met quite a lot of people with double O prefixes. I know, for example, that the head of intelligence is not called M, but is called C. <laughs> so, and actually, one of the things that the spy novelist character writes about is this organization called the Five Eyes, which is the intelligence services of, of this country, America, uh, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And 
actually, I didn't make that up. That exists. And there's a, a lovely running joke about that. T- tell us the joke about it. Well, the joke it. is that they all suspect each other. You know, they, they, they all, although it's, it's a colossally important organization, which is the intelligence sharing source center of the Western world. You know, everybody distrusts the British because their organizations are always full of Russian secret agents. Everybody dislikes the Americans because they can't keep secrets. Everybody dislikes the Canadians because they think they're better than everyone else. Everybody dislikes the Australians because they're Australian. Everybody dislikes the New Zealanders because they never come up with any good ideas. You know, so, so there's this world of mutual distrust. So you've with, offended just about everyone there. Yeah. I mean, sort of, I think, you know, equal opportunity offense, I think. But, you know, for comic purposes. And I thought that that was useful information that I learned in those years that I can now have fun with. You know, so, but what I do think is that I was very, very determined not to be deflected by the attack on my work from being the kind of writer I wanted to be. You know, I, I mean, it would have been very easy to write frightened books. But it would have been very easy to write revenge books. You know, and and I thought both of those would make me the creature of that thing that I didn't want to be the creature of. You know, and and I do think that if you were if you knew nothing about my life, if all you had in front of you was was the shelf of books and you were to read them chronologically, you wouldn't think something terrible happened to him in 1989. There isn't that break in the flow of the books. The books are on their own journey, you know, like Kishat. The books are on their cockeyed journey. And one of the lovely things about it is the sense of fun in it. You've never lost your sense of fun. Thank you. I mean, I, I would, yeah, that, I think the sense of fun gets you through a lot. I mean, right now in America, I'm very grateful for late night comedians because Their sense of fun helps one deal with what's going on. Salman Rushdie. Gishot is published by Jonathan Cape. And we'll be back after a short break with a look at the wide expanses of the road trip novel. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Earlier, we heard Salman Rushdie telling us about the road trip novels that inspired his book, Kishot. We thought we'd take a look at how novelists are offering fresh takes on the road trip novel. In fact, Kishot isn't the only road trip novel on the book along this, is it, Sean? No. So, um, Valeria Luiselli's Lost Children Archive is another, and it follows a family as they journey from New York down to the US-Mexico border. And it, there seems to be this particularly American thread of the road trip novel I don't know why that is we were talking about it before this talking about this foundational myths of of countries these big countries like America and Australia and how think, there I seem to be lots of road trip novels even if you look at the the very first history of America it's all about driving your wagons west isn't it it's a culture a culture founded on the road trip or this myth that there's kind of extra space and you can leave your troubles behind and go and find something in the emptiness out there, even though, of course, it wasn't really empty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, the idea of the individual finding themselves through, yeah. through travel, which is partly about staking out the territory, the geographical territory, which is also staking out the territory of yourself as a grown-up person in a new world. Yeah, if you're talking like sort of beatnik coming-of-age stuff, if we're going to talk about, everyone always says On the Road by Jack Kerouac, but let's not talk about On the Road because it's rubbish. 
<laughs> oh, that's a brave statement. <laughs> nah, it's rubbish. <laughs> Let's talk about everything Quite good else. about writing about jazz. <laughs> yeah, but even that, I debate. Anyway, I um, I was thinking that actually there's a funny thread in Red Trip novels because I, I was thinking about the great ones that I've loved and then thought, actually, a lot of them are really depressing. They're not always sort of these great uh, records of freedom and getting away from things there's also um things like as i lie dying by faulkner where they're transporting a corpse across mississippi that also got me thinking about alia trabuco zaran's the remainder which was up for the man booker international prize last year um translated by sophie hughes uh which was about three chilean students driving a hearse in search of a lost corpse Going back to an American book, books like Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, which I love and some people don't love because it's Steinbeck writing nonfiction and you get sort of full glaring Steinbeck being grumpy and kind of hating his own country. Uh, It's a really, really good travelogue book, though. He basically packs up his poodle Charlie and they go driving across America. And it's an amazing journey. It was 10,000 miles that they drove in this camper van that he had built for him. And it's sort of post-Pulitzer, so he's used to being recognised and he's kind of annoyed about being famous. Um, And he drives out of Long Island and goes across the Pacific Northwest and then to California and to Texas and then through the Deep South back up to New York. I mean, that's one of the points about why it's so American, isn't it, is that it's such a massive country. How else can you come to any conclusions about what it is other than following the roads and seeing all the different parts of it? Yeah, well, that's kind of why he did it in a way was to, I mean... Partly his son has said that he did it because he knew he was dying, but it was also he clearly had this urge to get a better sense of the country that he'd been writing about for so long and perhaps he'd lost touch with a bit because of his fame and his travelling around the world and stuff. So this sort of trip was kind of a last hurrah for him. But that's a piece of non-fiction, so that's kind of cheating in a way, isn't it? And often the subject of the road trip novel is often not so much the trip itself as the kind of journey the characters are going on as they go along the road. So, I mean, is, is John Steinbeck writing more about America or more about himself? I'd say more about America because he doesn't he doesn't really appear very self-reflective <laughs> and he is a massive grump. He most, basically doesn't get along with anyone on the trip except for Charlie, who's this sort of lovely placid presence um, next to him. But yeah, I think it's it's a lovely portrait of a country. If we would go into non-fiction then, you could talk about, say, Bell's Rings of Saturn or, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the whole psychogeographic Everything movement, that, like, that Ian Sinclair, yeah. full stop. <laughs> <laughs> and things like Bill Bryson and Paul Theroux and yeah. lots of old blokes travelling, basically. But what about more modern books, Claire? Are there, there things that are there's novels, indeed? Actually, things that are made up that are that are part of this tradition. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed The Wangs Versus the World, which was um, a first novel by Jade Chang, who's um, Chinese-American. And it, it was sort of a, around the time of the collapse of real estate and this busted millionaire collecting his kids who because he could no longer afford their boarding school fees and <laughs> driving off across America. She wears very lightly. It's like the opposite to Valeria Luiselli, mm. um, in that Valeria is very solemn and uh, attentive in a very solemn way. And Jade is sort of, it's this riotous journey across America. It's a sort of hoot in a quite a rushdy-ish way, in mm. a way. And there's also uh, like an American author, but not set in America, Jonathan Safran Fowler, and everything is illuminated, which follows in the modern parts of the novel, uh, a trip across the Ukraine. Again, that's quite zany in a way because of the tone of the narrator being this uh, young Ukrainian translator whose English isn't quite up to scratch. 
In terms of countries, I mean, we were having an argument about how much the size of the country counts. And I, I made the heretical claim that Ukraine was no bigger than the UK. And actually, you proved to me, Sean, on your phone. <laughs> Just with a Google Maps. <laughs> that it was. It's quite However, big. I mean, I do think that it's something that is it's particularly valuable for big countries. And yes. you're Australian. Mm. There, there are some very good Australian road novels, aren't there? Yeah, well, we, you and me both talking about Peter Carey's A Long Way From Home, which was his most recent novel, we both kind of feel was... Terribly, under, terribly underrated, I think. Yeah. It's a really good novel. And that's based on the Redux reliability trials in the 1950s, where it was a car manufacturers who started this road race around Australia. But then it becomes a meditation on what, what is Australia and what are Australians. But you also have this this vision of the outback littered with old car carcasses. You think, oh, that, that's such an, an extraordinary image, which I, I will carry forward with me just as I carried forward Peter Carey's earlier image of the cathedral being rowed down the river in Oscar and Lucinda. <laughs> it's got this brilliant image-making ability. Yeah, another example I only recently um, read but is quite a famous book in Australia because it's uh, now a syllabus text is Swallow the Air by Tara June Winch, who's a young Indigenous author. Again, that sort of that follows an indigenous teen who sets off to find her father and also get a better sense of her cultural heritage. That's also an element in the Peter Carey as well as this thread of indigenous history and also these divides between rural communities and metropolitan communities. And it's like a shorthand, the road trip novel, for looking at those divides as you sort of pass through towns into cities back into towns and in the Kerry it ends with a with this cave painted with aboriginal road maps and um, what he's suggesting is actually there are two totally different ways of mapping a country you know he's just going on this journey you could see it as a sort of parallel or ghost or shadow journey of journeys that have been taken by people before Mm -hmm. but seeing a completely different landscape and that's that in the end is it's I think is an elaboration on the road trip it's something I've never read and I do think it belongs to the genre and extends the genre. What about closer to home? Are there any Brits on this crowded island? Well, it's in, Britain is so small. And I, I do think that it's a quite a, a sort of dwarfish genre in England. <laughs> I mean, the, the obvious one that comes to mind is, well, the most obvious one is Neil Gaiman's Good Omens, Sean. You're a huge <laughs> Neil Gaiman fan, yeah. aren't you? This is actually the first example that came to me, maybe because of the recent TV adaptation. But you've got a hellish Bentley that's driven around by an angel and a demon. And they're trying to stop the apocalypse from happening. So they get into this Bentley and head to Lower Tadfield in Oxfordshire to try and find the Antichrist who was a young boy living in this Oxfordshire village. It's just got sort of all these elements of like it was how as like a young Australian teenager with no real awareness of English geography learnt about the M25 for example (laughs) and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are all riding motorbikes. There's a lot of movement in this novel so I think it's a good example. It is and you would call that a road trip novel. Yeah. I mean likewise Ali Smith's Spring I mean where they get into an old coffee van and head up for the battlefield of Culloden and that becomes a sort of reflection on the relationship between England and Scotland mm. at these in these very troubled times but I was struck by how often it sort of heads off into the supernatural a shining example of that is Michelle Faber's Under the Skin in which an alien serial killer curb crawler does horrible things to male muscled 
hitchhikers. <laughs> Driving around a van, <laughs> picking up dudes. He's Me Too before Me Too <laughs> yeah. is even dreamed of. There's also supernatural or magical fiction or superheroes, if you want to have it, in Laddie Hubbard's The Talented Ribkins, a novel where she sets off through some of Florida's less glamorous locations on kind of family history with Johnny Ribkins and his 13-year-old niece go and dig up treasure to try and pay off a debt. Another great road trip novel, but on, on quite a small canvas because it's all within Florida. Well, it's like um, Sing Unburied Sing as well, which has got a fantastical element to it because it's got this sort of thread of ghosts that pop up and narrate parts of it but that's set just in the state of Mississippi and follows a family as they leave their home to go pick up the father the patriarch of the the family unit as he's released from prison and they go to collect him I quite like the idea we were talking about whether the road as well is too obvious an example <laughs> of road trip. Well, <laughs> we decided that the shopping trolley counts as a vehicle <laughs> and the shopping trolley that this father and son are pushing across America after the apocalypse has happened I think that counts well so so now here was our theory that there is a, a little subgenre which is post-apocalyptic road novels yeah when which, the roads aren't really roads anymore with the, they've tracks. got lots of yeah. potholes with the road and with and Emily St John Mandel station 11 Richard you're a fan of yeah, her, yes she came in to talk to us a little while back when it was published and it's but it's actually strictly speaking it's a post post-apocalyptic novel <laughs> because she's it's set about 20 years after the disaster when things are kind of beginning to take off and actually she follows a troupe of actors and musicians who are trying to get beyond the just day-to-day grind of living by touring Shakespeare around the country this, um, this, this discussion I think has been slightly outrageous in that we've bent and borrowed and twisted the road genre <laughs> to our to our purposes but hey that's what literary chat is all about isn't yeah, and, it and that's all for this week's podcast next week we'll take a look at the memoir in the company of the writers laura cumming and rick samara and as always do contact us on twitter at guardian books or leave a comment on the podcast page and do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts but for now from me richard lee me sean kane and me claire armistead and from our producer ian chambers thanks for listening and goodbye For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.